Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for joining me today. We've got two hours, and we're going to be talking about the things that matter most. Uh, You know, it's funny. Our culture worked hard to deny the relevance of God. Uh, We have a lot of practical atheism in our midst, okay? Um, And yet, (laughs) <laughs> there are a lot of people in our culture fascinated by the supernatural, by the paranormal, by the preternatural. And you can see it in the popularity of films that explore the demonic or exorcisms. Well, The Exorcist, Believer, was released last month as a direct sequel to The Exorcist. Now, The Exorcist, you might remember, 50 years ago now, 1973, We're going to take a look at the significance of that film and also compare what it says about the Catholic Church with the reality of the Church. And my guest will be uh, friend, colleague, and Catholic apologist Tom Nash. Also coming up, we're going to look at an ancient prophecy that may have foretold Our Lady of Guadalupe. Joseph and Monique Gonzalez uh, have written Guadalupe and the Flower World Prophecy, how God prepared the Americas for conversion before the Lady appeared. This is this is a intense book. Um, extraordinary amount of research went into it, and I'm looking forward to having uh, Joseph and Monique with me coming up in the second hour of today's program. Matthew Bunsen joins us today as well. As you know, Pope Francis has expressed for, well, for since 2019, deep reservations about direction of the Catholic Church in Germany. And he has intervened multiple times to redirect what the German bishops are doing there. Well, he has just, we've just received a, a letter that he sent to four German laywomen in which he expresses his concerns about the German synodal path. You'll be surprised, I think, to hear what he says Uh, I'm going to have a few comments about important stories and why the secular press misses key points in it. And then we also look at the 25th anniversary of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This was an incredibly important piece of legislation signed into law by President Clinton. But first, the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Romney Maria Radio News for Tuesday, November 21st. It's the memorial of the presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Today's news is brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. Pope Francis has expressed deep reservations about the direction of the Catholic Church in Germany. In a letter published today, he addresses four German Catholic laywomen who resigned from the German Synod in February and wrote to the Pope to share their concerns. Pope Francis is concerned there are numerous steps to steer it increasingly away from the Universal Church's common path. More on this story in the second hour of today's program. Four people are hurt and a gunman is dead following a shooting at a Walmart in Ohio last night. 
Police responded to the store in Beaver Creek, east of Dayton, after a male suspect reportedly walked into the store and began firing. The shooter took his own life. A federal appeals court has ruled private parties can't sue under the Civil Rights Act, which could eventually lead to a major voting rights battle at the Supreme Court. Monday's ruling upheld a 2022 decision from an Arkansas federal judge that only the U.S. Attorney General is able to sue under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The majority of lawsuits under Section 2 are filed by private parties as a way to challenge racially discriminatory voting rules. And when it comes to cooking a turkey, USDA food expert Meredith Carruthers says you should use a food thermometer. And we really recommend to check the temperature in three places, the thickest part of the breast, the innermost part of the wing, and the innermost part of the thigh. And how long can you get away with leaving leftovers in the fridge? The CDC recommends you should eat all of your leftover cooked turkey and side dishes made with it within three to four days. From your AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. It's been 30 years since uh, President Clinton signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. Uh, It's actually a remarkable story, and it's uh, got some legal subtleties to it, but this is worth getting under our belt and getting familiar with. And so we're going to take some time with uh, uh, Deacon... Uh, and Chief Executive Officer of the Alvin Maria School of Law, John Zarnetsky. He also serves as legal advisor to the Holy See's mission to the United Nations, representing the Holy See in negotiations, including establishing the International Criminal Court and several international treaties. And Dean Zarnetsky is a lay member of the Dominican Order, which we share together, and a third-degree knight of Columbus, which we also share together. John, good to have you back here. Al, it's it's a privilege and a pleasure, as always. Let's talk about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. What was the problem to which the Religious Freedom Restoration Restoration Act was supposed to be the solution? Well, uh, Al, I think it is, as you said, worth just giving a little bit of detail without getting too deep in the weeds. Uh, the, The First Amendment of the Constitution, of course, says that Congress shall make no law respect or prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Uh, now, that, that prohibition is absolute in that language, but, uh, of course, there have to be situations where uh, a, a, a claim of religious freedom gives way to something the government wishes to do. Like, for example, the First Amendment is not without exceptions. Mm-hmm. So the and the traditional rule goes back to a very famous case, Al. I know you're familiar with it, Sherbert versus Werner, right. 1963. The court that was a case where someone uh, refused to work on her Sabbath. It happened to be Saturday, and of course the employer uh, or the government denied that person unemployment insurance when she was fired from her job for refusing to work. And the court in that case reasoned that uh, the the law was a generally applicable law. It was not directed at her religious uh, uh, faith. However, 
uh, and therefore, in general, those type of laws are applicable. Mm-hmm. However, the court in Sherbert held that if the employee in that case could show that there was a uh, less burdensome way for the government to achieve its compelling interest in work laws, then the employee could have an exemption from this statute. So that was the rule going forward for about, oh, 30 years, more or less. Okay. That, uh, you know, the, the government laws can uh, burden religion, but if there's a, le- uh, a less restrictive way for the government to accomplish its uh, objective, an employee can be exempted from that law. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, then in 1990, uh, Al, the court came down with a case that you and I discussed in the list of the worst Supreme Court cases in history a few years back. I remember. Yeah. (laughs) And that was uh, the Smith case, where a great hero of mine, Justice Scalia, Mm -hmm. uh, aired, I think, in the majority opinion. Uh, There, the Supreme Court took away the exemption of people whose religion is uh, burdened by a government, by a generally applicable government law. Uh, the court held as long as the law is generally applicable, uh, then it's going to be valid, regardless of the burden on someone's religion. That's the famous uh, peyote case with yeah. Native Americans. Yeah, these so were Rifra. We this was where two we had two uh, Native Americans fired from their jobs at a rehab clinic uh, after they, I guess, tested positive for mescaline. Um, which they had used in a religious ceremony, and this is this is not unheard of. I mean that that there's a long history of peyote cactus being used in certain Native American religious ceremonies. So, uh, just yeah, there, there was no yeah. question. This, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go right ahead. There, there's no question that this was uh, legitimate and longstanding religious practice yeah. on the part of these employees. Uh, So, uh, Smith, the the peyote case, took away the exemption that the Supreme Court had granted in Sherbert. So Congress acted. Uh, My wife likes to say, land the plane already, John. So let me land the plane. Uh, I'm I'm enjoying the ride, man, so don't worry. Congress uh, responded to the Smith case, specifically, Supreme Court case, as it sometimes does, and passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the effect of that statute was to restore the Sherbert test, essentially. Mm -hmm. That is to say, a generally applicable law passed. Now, the original RIFRA applied to both uh, federal government and the states. Mm -hmm. A generally applicable law passed by Congress that burdens religion, uh, a person so burdened can have an exemption from that law uh, as long as they can show that the there is a uh, less restrictive means by which Congress can uh, achieve its aim. Oh, and by the way, Congress must the, the law must be directed towards a compelling government interest. Yes. So um, that's what RIFRA sought to do. And in the, the Smith decision really 
aggravated a lot of people, uh, everybody from the ACLU to, you know, more traditional values organizations, right? Oh, yes, it did. Um, I, I can't think of the famous, it, uh, I forget the name of the um, right-leaning group that was most vociferous about it, the Traditional Values Foundation. Yeah, yeah Coalition. Like I yeah. apologize for not getting that quite right, but the ACLU uh, was uh, definitely anti-Smith decision, so it did expand the political spectrum, Yeah, the criticism of Smith. Now, uh, so the intention of RIFRA, as it's commonly called, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, was basically to restore um, the uh, the old, the Sherbert test. Uh, Correct. So, so government um, could not uh, substantially burden uh, a, a religious person. Uh, when I mean this, but they had there was a follow up to this. In other words, it ceased to apply as fully to the states as it did to the federal. That's correct. Yeah, tell us about that. That's a little weird. Yes. The um, Supreme Court, in a subsequent case, uh, just a few years um, after RIFRA, sometime in the late 90s, I believe, held that Congress had exceeded its authority in passing a federal statute uh, that also applied, as RIFRA purported to do, to the states. Now, um, the reaction to that case has been that many states, um, including my home state of Florida, have passed state versions of RIFRA, okay. but not all, by any means. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I'm not sure about Michigan. Um, I, there have been a few states where the legislature has not acted, but the judiciary has imposed a RIFRA slash Sherbert type test on uh, burdens on free exercise. So uh, that's a very interesting area. It's a little bit technical as far as uh, federalism right. concerns are, but right. uh, the main point is the Supreme Court held that RIFRA does not apply to the states, despite the fact that that's what Congress initially attended. Yeah. Do you know why uh, Justice Scalia uh, didn't like the Sherbert taste, uh, test? Uh, I, I, I just was it a was it a problem? It was it difficult to apply it? Uh, was there something inconsistent about it that he didn't like? Uh, it, it, it mandated strict scrutiny, right? Uh, when yes. you, yeah. Yeah. So, what didn't he like about it? Yes, and, and I left that out, and that's a crucial point, is that part of the Sherbert test was any burden on religious exercise must uh, meet strict scrutiny, meaning the, the very most uh, rigorous um, scrutiny to be certain that it was intended for general, not discriminatory reasons. Right. Um, to answer your question, Al, I, I honestly do not know. Um, somebody that has delved more deeply into Justice Scalia's thought might know mm -hmm. uh, why Justice Scalia um, it, 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 it sided with uh, an unusual coalition in um, in that yeah. opinion. Yeah. I, I just don't know. I don't either. Yeah. I've been curious about it, um, but I haven't made much of an effort to find out either, I'll admit. 
Um, well, neither have I, unfortunately. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so the would you say that as a result of the Smith decision, and then the subsequent uh, passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and then it's um, uh, it's distinguishing it from the state from state application and federal application. Are we less religiously free today than we were um, after Smith, immediately after Smith? No, I, I think that we are uh, more religiously free. Okay. Uh, the, the, resu- the result of the Smith test would have been that it or was and would, would still be, but for RIFRA, that uh, as long as the government can show that the law that they passed, which burdens yours or my religious freedom, applied to everybody equally. In other words, it wasn't directed at a specific religion or an individual. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that law is going to stand. You know, an example might be uh, if the government uh, tried to resurrect the disaster that was prohibition, uh, and therefore... Uh, and Smith applied, there'd be an argument, I'm not an expert in this area, but there'd be an argument that meant that Catholic churches couldn't use wine in the um, Mass. Yeah, that's right. RIFRA corrects that. Very good. John, thanks again. Uh, Really appreciate your help on these things. And uh, again, I think it gives our people uh, a better understanding of how, uh, you know, we need to stay engaged uh, in this culture and protecting our religious liberties. Thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure, Alan. Dr. Ray Garendi. Two of the hardest words to say in the English language. I'm sorry. I'll ask couples, when was the last time you said I'm sorry? Oh, uh, I think it was our wedding rehearsal dinner. I I spilled some coffee on her lap. I said, hey, sorry about that. Why is I'm sorry so hard to say? What does it mean to you? Are you saying you're a failure? Are you saying I'm wrong? Are you saying, if I say I'm sorry, I'm admitting it's all my fault. I'm sorry are two of the softest words in a relationship in the English language. I'm sorry, very hard to say, very easy on relationships. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. At one level, the reputation a person has is one of their most precious gifts. And to intentionally harm the good reputation of someone is a very grave matter. We can do this often through detraction by disclosing others' faults without a valid reason or calumny just outright lying about other people, likewise through rash judgment. This commandment also protects the truth, which is another very, very great good. To lie is to speak something that we know is false with the intention of deceiving others. We ought 
to be dedicated to the truth. It is the truth that sets people free, while errors and lies entrap people in many difficult and often sinful situations. The Lord asks us to give witness to the truth of the gospel. This commandment, therefore, asks us to stay dedicated to the truth and to other people's reputation. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. He is honored by the church as a saint with the title of the angelic doctor. Matthew Bunsen and the doctors of the church. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a basic textbook for young theology students that became the church's most famous guide to the faith, the Summa Theologica. It helped him earn the title Doctor of the Church. He died in 1274. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. There are a few stories that uh, we're looking at uh, right now that kind of get under my skin because the press, secular press, generally fails to report accurately, fully on events that involve religious ideas, institutions, influences, and individuals. We have, for instance, this uh, story, which is ongoing, of Pope Francis in the German synodal way. I I just want to make a quick pass at this, because next hour we're going to have uh, Matthew Bunsen on with us, talking about this recent letter of Pope Francis. He sent it to four laywomen in Germany. At least uh, two of them are respected philosophers and theologians. And they're warning Pope Francis about the dangers of the German synodal way. It looks as though the German bishops are moving towards schism. Um, And I say, watch how the secular press reports on this, if they do it at all. I'm talking about the letter. Uh, It's not because there's a lack of material. Since 2019, Pope Francis and the Holy See are on record warning the German bishops that they're heading down the wrong path in jeopardizing the unity of the church. 
But the secular press seems to have only one lens by which they judge events in the Catholic Church. It's that old, tired narrative of liberal versus conservative, which they adopted during the Second Vatican Council, and which still apparently serves them today. You know, so they see Pope Francis as a theological liberal who's trying to drag the church, the medieval church, into a new culture where homosexual marriage is as accepted as modern medicine. Now, it doesn't matter that Pope Francis is on record since 2019 warning about the dangers of the German synodal way, which is, in fact, trying to rethink Catholic teaching on faith and morals, especially sexual morality. But they've got the typical yay-boo game, right? Um, You know, um, Pope Francis is a brave liberal, yay! But he's resisted by hidebound traditionalists, boo! Pope Francis doesn't want to judge homosexuals, yay! But his pioneering voice is drowned out by the din of conservative reaction, boo! This is nonsense. Even some Catholics have fallen into this trap. No pope who has explicitly rejected same-sex marriage, women's ordination, the ministerial priesthood, and gender ideology can be classified as a theological liberal. We may not understand all that Pope Francis is doing, wants to do, but he doesn't fit the role of a liberal theological crusader at all. Watch the coverage of this letter and see if the secular press picks up on any of the subtleties and nuances here. Second story that's out there now is Rosalind Carter's passing. Many of you are old enough to remember the Carter campaign for the presidency. Carter, when he ran in 1976, was a complete mystery to the the press. At that time, the secular press was much worse than they are even today. They couldn't distinguish evangelical Protestants from Pentecostals, uh, Baptist laymen from Assemblies of God lay preachers, and they didn't know what to make of a president who publicly said with pride that he had been, quote, born again. He taught Baptist Sunday school every week, and uh, for the summer after his adult born-again experience, Jimmy Carter went door-to-door sharing his faith, sharing the gospel with people. Uh, We know that after his defeat by Ronald Reagan, after only one term, Carter joined Habitat for Humanity and worked repairing homes for the poor. Now, this doesn't mean we have to believe that he was an excellent president. It means, however, that you can't report on Carter without noting the role his faith played in his life. I mean, this helps explain... Uh, what he did at Camp David with Menachem Begin of Israel and Anwar Sadat of Egypt. Uh, you know, I remember interviewing uh, Jimmy Carter and hearing him describe how he had persuaded Chinese Premier Deng Xiaoping to begin allowing Bibles to be imported into China again and distributed. And his wife of 77 years, Rosalind, was no less a committed Christian. Uh, again, not saying that, uh, doctrinally speaking, that everything was uh, coherent or consistent, but the, they'll both tell you, and they've said it publicly in the past, that the stability of their marriage owes it to a few very basic things. Uh, every night, without fail, they would read to each other from the scriptures. They continued that through the marriage. Um, they practiced St. Paul's advice to never let the sun go down on your anger. This was one of the most important rules uh, to their marriage. They told Bill and Melinda Gates, we have 21 grandchildren and four children, and we have lots of arguments about our family. But we try to get over that argument before we go to sleep. Much of the reporting on Rosalind Carter will praise her humanitarian efforts, 
Take a look and see if they also point to the motivation for those humanitarian efforts. Will they point out that it was the sacrificial love of Jesus that was the engine that drove her to serve people in that way? There's another current story that's hampered by the secular press's inability to take seriously the role that religion plays in world affairs, and that deals with Hamas. How often have you heard the secular press claim that Hamas is working for a Palestinian homeland? This is not the aim of Hamas. Both Hamas's charters make it clear right up front. In fact, in 1988, charters the second paragraph. They exist to obliterate the nation Israel and push it from the river into the sea. This seems so nihilistic, right? Because Hamas is building on a central Muslim teaching that the press doesn't report on. Osama bin Laden wrote about it in 2002 when he wrote his letter to America, and this is the teaching. Once a piece of real estate, territory, land, is conquered in the name of Allah, that land remains the property of the Muslim Ummah, that is, the, the Muslim people. This is quite different from Israel. Israel has never had as its goal the obliteration of Palestinians. 20% of Israel's citizens are Palestinian. Last week, we saw, heard the story of these TikTok users rediscovering Osama bin Laden's 2002 letter to America. Right in that letter, he repeats many basic Islamic beliefs, including that since Muslims conquered Palestine in 635, Palestine is a Muslim land and cannot be other than Muslim. No land, once conquered in the name of Allah, can belong to anyone but the Muslim community. Now, uh, wait and see if you see that reported, but that is central to this conflict between Hamas and Israel. Uh, Joining me right now is my longtime friend and colleague, um, <laughs> I just dropped my notes here. That's Tom, all right. Let me see if I can bend down and pick them up. I get it for you. Thanks. You've got such a wonderful resume. I didn't want to not introduce <laughs> you here. There you go. But Tom Nash has served the church professionally for more than 35 years, including as a theology advisor for EWTM. He's a contributing apologist for Catholic Answers, a contributing writer uh, for both the National Catholic Register and Catholic World Report. He appears as a periodic guest host for this program, Crest in the Afternoon, and he has appeared as a regular guest apologist on Catholic Answers Live for more than a decade. He's the author of some outstanding books, The Biblical Roots of the Mass, What Did Jesus Do?, The Biblical Roots of the Catholic Church, and 20 Answers, The Rosary. He's also a contributing author to Catholic for a Reason, uh, Scripture and the Mystery of the Mass, and Faith Facts, Answers to Catholic Questions, Volumes 1 and 2. He's a regular member of the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars, and he has written a, a very good little essay called A Tale of Two Exorcisms, which is the occasion for our conversation today. Yes. The Exorcist, yes, the sir. big movie of 1973, <laughs> yes, is sir. having its 50th anniversary. Yes, it is, and it's great, and I'm glad that uh, with Catholic Answers that was able to post it as what we call an indulgence on Catholic.com. People can go check it out online. But uh, yeah, it's uh, the the recent movie called Exorcist Believer was the occasion, and it was kind of like showing, comparing the two movies and how the the original does so many things well, and how the the second 
detours from it, but at the same time affirms the messages, including the Catholic truth of the messages, uh, in the process of, shall we say, going a different path by uh, dealing with certain spiritual matters. Yeah. Uh, the, why do you think there is the difference here? Is, is it because uh, those associated with the first film were yeah. more sensitive to the Catholic nuances of the story? Yeah, I, I read, and the, and the director, the producer talked about, we wanted to make it kind of like a more egalitarian, more inclusive. And we see it's kind of ironic because in the movie, Ellen Burstyn, who does so well and I think should have won the Academy Award for the first movie, she d- plays her role so well. She, The subplot to the first movie, Al, in my opinion, would be that you've got this atheist woman who doesn't have any religion, no religious beliefs, and then you have this Catholic priest, placed by Jason Miller, uh, who is a psychiatrist, and, you know, they're kind of poo-pooing this whole thing of exorcisms. Right. And he's going away from faith. She's going toward faith in the process, and they kind of meet in the middle, and she moves him back toward faith. So it's a, it's a beautiful subplot. But in the new movie, it's like, it's crazy, because it's like, gee, uh, 50 years later, this is kind of like the sequel, because she, she's there, and it says, when she tries to uh, be an itinerant exorcist, she says, in the name of all holy beings and in the name of my daughter, Reagan, you know, release this child. And it's like, you know, I say in, the, in my, my uh, is this, reflection, is, you know, it's like bringing a butter knife to a, to yeah. a gunfight <laughs> and it didn't work out well. It's like, gee, you're right, you guys, it didn't work well. She got in trouble. Later on, the priest goes rogue. Uh, you know, a priest is not only a priest who's supposed to be an exorcist, only a priest can act it, but a priest who's authorized by his bishop. As Adam Bly sells so well on his religious demonology website, you have to not just be a priest, but be authorized by your bishop because he's a successor of the apostles it's a it's a legalistic it's a legal legalistic in a good sense of the word a world whereby you have to follow and god's in charge i mean after all the devil is a creature he's under god's dominion and so but therefore the the bishops have to operate you have to designate a, a an exorcist and if you don't you get in trouble and that's what happens with this priest not only does he designate the the uh nun who, woman who never became a nun and became a nurse she tries to go it alone she gets in trouble he tries to go it alone without you know i'm gonna who needs the church right yeah. I'm, I'm gonna i'm this uh, anyone is called i'm gonna go out there and and well-meaning hispanic priest playing playing his role but he ends up being killed in a gruesome way yeah. and it's it's like affirms the truth and like so i think despite they're wanting to be again that there's nothing special about the Catholic Church, that it doesn't have this divine, uh, shall we say, uh, mission given by Jesus Christ, that in fact, in spite of themselves, they they, uh, they uh, affirm those teachings in various ways. You know, from a dramatic point of view, that doesn't make much sense to me. No, they do some good things well. I'll give them credit. Uh, I, I say that the devil is the master chess maker. Yeah. Uh, chess, uh, he's he's the, uh, the chess master, and that is... He is going to be six moves ahead of someone right, else. And right. so you've got to be humble. I think of James 4, 6, 7 in, in the letter of James about turn to God. God opposes the proud, but he blesses and gives yeah. grace to the humble. Therefore, turn to the Lord and resist the devil. Don't go out looking for a fight. Resist the devil and he will flee. And so that's what we see uh, in the original exorcism and what we don't see in this one. But they do show in the new movie, I'll give them credit because they do show that they... Hold it there, Tom. Got to sure. take a break. We'll be right back. This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. 
That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. I turned from a recreational drug user to a drug addict. That took me to my knees. I lost a family, almost two families. I lost friends. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. I love it. My heart's there. I took communion after 18 years, and I, the rest of the Mass I sat and cried. God restored my life. God restored my family. God restored my love. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org today. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. Father Benedict Groeschel. I usually am operating on the gifts of the Holy Spirit when I don't feel well, even when I'm annoyed, when I'm down and out. During my recovery from the automobile accident, immense numbers of people wrote to me and sent me emails, 50,000, and they told me how helpful they thought my talks on EWTN were to them. I'm delighted. But I want you to know, I'm nobody's fool. The talks that were helpful, the sentences that were helpful, the phrases that were helpful, came from the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And the styrofoam packaging came from me. I did that. And styrofoam doesn't amount to very much. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Conflict is an inevitable part of family life, but how we handle disagreements can make a big difference. When the temperature starts heating up, try pausing long enough to do two things. First, say a quick prayer, either silently or, if you can, out loud with the person that you're having conflict with. Ask God to strengthen you with the help you need to resolve the conflict in a respectful and loving way. Second, take a moment to reframe the disagreement. Instead of viewing it as a battle to be won, think of it as an opportunity to grow and strengthen your relationship. The goal in any conflict isn't to decide who's right or wrong, but to understand each other better and find common ground. To learn more about handling family conflicts gracefully, check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, Visit CatholicCounselors.com.
Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is apologist uh, Tom Nash. Uh, we are talking uh, about the 50th anniversary of the movie The Exorcist. There's a follow-up to it now uh, in commemoration, I guess, of the 50th anniversary. It's called Exorcist um, Believer. And Tom was comparing the two. I, I want to go back, though, to the first one, which had uh, took place within a very strong Catholic context. The architecture, the symbology, the statues, all of that creates this sense of awe that's there. And um, in the second, the second movie, it sounds like that kind of art is stripped away. You have some elements of it, Al. They do visit a, a beautiful Catholic church, but it's kind of like I, I, I sometimes compare it to like uh, with the superheroes. It's kind of like Avengers. We're all going to get together. We're going to need all of us. We're going to come together. The Catholics, the Protestants. I mean, it doesn't represent Pentecostals well. At one point, one guy says, well, gee, I, when I was having trouble, my sister and I, we had to go outside of our belief system. A Pentecostal Christian would never say right. such a thing. They would not look to no. a non-Christian source to help Absolutely with a spiritual not. problem. Yeah. But beyond that, you do have the different things. We have this kind of nativist, uh, native of African religion lady who also quotes scripture bits. So there's kind of an amalgamation, as you sometimes see in African religions, but it's not, you do see some Catholic things, but the Catholic Church comes off not especially well. Uh, they they show him trying to speak to some people. There's several priests together, apparently at a chancery or something like that. Uh, I don't think it's going to be, it's going to be dangerous for us, dangerous for you. It's kind of like the Catholic Church has not learned its lesson yeah. after the abuse crisis. It's like, um, gee, instead of looking out for the flock of the most vulnerable, we're going to protect the institution. So, yeah. But in the process, yeah. again, the guy goes out there, and he's not going to because he's being obedient, but then... The guy comes out, Leslie Odom Jr., who does a, a good job in in the movie as the father of one of the possessed girls. He comes out and says, hey, father, fights in there. And so he does come in there, and they're like, hey, here's the priest and all that. Yeah. And the priest, and he seems to be winning, and then it doesn't go well. Okay. So, uh, yeah, and then the, the one nun who... They do well because the the lady who is played by Ann Dowd, she does a good job. She is a nurse, but she grew up and she was in the religious life, but she never professed. But she tries to tell the father, Leslie Odom, saying, hey, this is real because this guy knew my name, which I never revealed to anyone. My religious name I never revealed to anybody. I never finally took it. And they also knew that I had an abortion. And then he, she ends, the devil ends up using that against her when she tries to exercise. So they do get some things right with the preternatural knowledge. But yeah, the elements overall where you have Georgetown University, Dahlgren Chapel there, the beauty of that, and the the, the, the campus, and um, the whole Catholic ambiance yeah. is yeah. not really there. And they, they lose out on it. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Um, the, the, uh, uh, the movie, the original movie 50 years ago, The Exorcist, uh, is grounded in a, a allegedly a true story, right? Yes, it is. Um, a gentleman uh, playing with the, a Ouija board who was a Lutheran kid. It's technically in Cottage City, Maryland, uh, but not they they don't give the city back in the day when it was in the Washington Post because they didn't want to identify, get somebody you know privacy and all that. Mm -hmm. And he ends up going to St. Louis where they have the exorcism. So they have some of the things that came that Blatty, who was a student at Georgetown University at the Blatty's time, Blatty's the novelist. Yes, thank you. William Peter Blatty, the novelist who wrote the movie The Exorcist and also adapted screenplay, got the Oscar for that. He uh, took elements from what he learned in the classroom and brought them into the movie, including the Ouija board, uh, 
that uh, in this case, a young lady, Reagan, um, Linda Blair, is playing with and gets on the wrong side with, uh, you know, when you dance with the devil, you will get dipped, as I yeah, like to say. Yeah. Uh, there was some controversy between uh, William Peter Blatty and Georgetown, I don't know, 10 years ago, yes. lawsuits or something. What was that about? Yeah, he um, wanted to get them to have their Catholic identity removed because of their dissent in different ways, not standing up for the truth, not taking, for example, Ex Corde Ecclesiae, which okay. is a document that uh, theologians are supposed to, a Catholic oath is supposed to take. And unfortunately, none of the Jesuit universities, despite some of the great heritage, have not done that. But uh, yeah, so he and the university weren't on the best of terms. Uh, but I always like to go there, and I—it's I, a beautiful campus, and mm-hmm. I always ask for the intercession of the, <laughs> the the Jesuits who have gone before us in the the graveyard going back a couple of centuries. So yeah. I, I love to visit the university. In in the um, in the story, uh, the, the historical story. Okay. Yeah. Um, do we have the death of uh, a priest as a result? of offering himself up to the devil? No, there is not that death of a, a priest in real life. Okay. Uh, interestingly enough, though, as as uh, I talk about in the com- in the commentary, Roger Ebert said in so many words, you know, when you want to get serious with the devil, you better call the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what happened in real life. The Lutheran pastor says he called the Catholic Church because he was having trouble yeah. with all the manifestations that were going on in the house, and it wasn't going well, and thus... The Catholic Church steps in, and again, we don't say what we always say with the Blessed Mother, the Pope, everything. It all goes back to their relationship with Jesus Christ, right. and it's by our blessing with Christ and the Eucharist, the sacraments, that makes this all possible. Uh, Father Mirren, the older priest, who's an, an exorcist yes. and has had experience with it, uh, I think it was in Africa. He was also doing archaeological digs in northern Iraq. Yes. Um, Wonderfully played by Max von Sydow. Oh, oh man, outstanding! Just fantastic, outstanding. Um, again, there's a, a, a remarkable dignity that he exhibits as he's going into battle. He's not careless. He's not flippant. This is serious stuff. Yeah, and you know, I saw him in the 25th anniversary where they did a documentary. He goes, "It doesn't matter what I believe. It's better. It's that he believes." Which just shows you what being a great actor about because he sells it so well and he's trying to talk to the young priest is saying hey you know you don't listen the tack is powerful it's psychological don't listen and he got because he's trying to say well i think there's been three personalities i've seen manifest it's like there's only one now you can talk about legion that there could be many devils but there's only one in terms of that there is a demonic presence yeah Yeah. so he does so well and um, yeah, and the, but then the priest does come around and he does give his life. People say, oh, well, did he commit suicide? Did the devil throw him out? The bottom line is this, as I would say, that he clearly says, take me, take me, which is not right. recommended. Right. And then so the devil comes into him and then he says, no. And now the question becomes like, the bottom line is she doesn't, the, the woman, the young girl, Linda Blair, Reagan, does not get killed. He goes out the window. And if there's any doubt whether the church has won, hey, this girl's been exercised, number one. Number two, the priest who went down the famous exorcist steps, used to be called the Hitchcock steps, now the exorcist steps, <laughs> 75 of them in, uh, in uh, Georgetown. Anyway, the point is, is he gives his last confession. Are you sorry for it? So you see this yeah. beautiful scene at the end where he gives his last confession, and and therefore the devil's been exercised, and he dies reconciled with Christ. So it 
just shows it's an imperfect, you might say, oh, that's an imperfect ending, but it's like it's human ending, and it shows that God has won, and, and God works through imperfect human beings. Yeah. Uh, I remember when the movie first came out in 1973. It was it was a it was a really a, it was a new story. There's a lot of resistance to it. Evangelical Protestants were uh, very much against it. Uh, I, I was in East Lansing at the time at Michigan State University, and one of the uh, women who was in the same department I was uh, was part of a group uh, called Shiloh, which was a Pentecostal covenant community, and they were out there picketing in front of the theater. I was involved in New Age spirit, what we would call New Age spirituality. I wouldn't even get close to that thing. At yeah, that time. And, and I have to say, to be clear, I'm not into slasher movies. I'm not into horror movies. Right. I see this as a as a tale of faith, a story of faith, and that's what I've always enjoyed about it. Because I think sometimes, Al, but people sometimes come to realize the reality of God by realizing the reality of evil spirits, and yeah. I think this is what the movie does so well. And I've seen it a number of times. I saw it at the Michigan Theater. You know, here we are in studio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And the Michigan Theater is outstanding acoustics. Uh, that was the first time I saw it in 1980. I wish I would have seen it back in 73. I wasn't old enough. I remember my older brothers going to it. My brother Chris had the book at home. Uh, he's 10 years my senior. Uh, you know, you see it, and there's the, yeah. the devil on the cover. It's kind of a foreboding-looking book. Yeah, sure. But, uh, yeah, I just remember when it came out, because you saw it. There were theaters everywhere. You just saw The Exorcist yeah. on the on the, on the the outside of the theaters. And so it was the talk of the town. It is amazing that in a society which seems to more and more practice some type of practical atheism, there is still this hunger for the preternatural, the paranormal, Yes. Something beyond mere matter. It um, says something about our human nature. Uh, yeah. and, and that's why I think, uh, just a brief thing about Mercedes McCambridge, she plays the voice of the devil, which I think she does so well. Uh, with her with her voice, it's kind of androgynous, and I think uh, Mel Gibson kind of gave a nod to that with that androgynous portrayal in, in, of the devil in, in, the, in passion. the Passion of the Christ. Yeah. yeah. But you just see this, and you just see, but now, haunted houses, seances, uh, the, the, the night of the dead or the dawn of the dead and all that stuff. There's there's this we are made in god's image and likeness we realize that there's not that there's something more than here and i like also that the movie people know the real thing and i think that's why this new movie has not done as well not only in uh rotten tomatoes with the reviews with regard to the critics but also with the people the people know the real thing and that's why i think the movie hey you might have a lot of problems with the catholic church but you'll be looking for a catholic priest if you did see somebody in need for an exorcist which is actually exorcism. in a way that's kind of the motto isn't it yeah of the of the and, first and the devil movie. himself yeah. i mean hostile witnesses our friend gary machuda's book where is the devil? It's a black mass. He doesn't look for ordinary grape juice. He doesn't look for ordinary uh, bread. He looks for the Eucharistic real thing, and that's an affirmation. It's a backhanded compliment about by the devil and his minions that the Catholic Church is the true enemy, not the not the tool of the devil, but in fact the the Church of God. Um, the Catholic Church has always uh, had room in its um, canon law and its uh, theology for exorcisms. Um, but apparently there, it was neglected for a while, and under John Paul II, there was a time when he required that every diocese would have an exorcist. Do you recall that? I remember that time, and then we've seen the uptick, yeah. have we not, and, and the more training of exorcists. 
Now, it's true. I mean, the, the great thing about the movie gets it right. They go through all the medical, the psychological. Yeah, that's and, they right. just, and then the great thing, too, is that they're, they're mocking the church. At one point, the doctor, the head guy, this clinic, he says, <laughs> he says, well, you know, have you had any religious beliefs? No, not at all. No. Well, you know, the Catholic Church has a thing called exorcism, and you might want to look at that. It's not that it really works the way they think, but that the belief in the exorcism would cause it so the belief that someone else can oh, fix it will do it. And she looks at one of the best lines in the movie. She says, so, and she's still the atheist. So you want to me to take my daughter to a witch doctor is that it and i thought amen and and the look on his face is priceless because guess what all the king's horses and men and medical could not solve it now we're going to let the church step in yeah 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 it's it's he's he's acknowledging that the only thing he can think of that left yeah try is this thing called exorcism and it works, but not for the reasons the church believes. It's purely the force of suggestion. Yeah, and, 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 and she that, that and one. she calls him on it. She says, "Really?" You, and he's you, got nothing. You want me to see a witch doctor? Yeah, uh, yeah. And then she, of course, is left. This was the this was the uh, only port in the storm. The church was the uh, only solid ground she could get to stand on yeah and uh and the church delivered yeah and and the great thing about it is he's not believing in all this kind of stuff because here's the one thing that's kind of interesting because it wasn't holy water and it wasn't blessed and so why did the devil react that way so that's a little plot gap yeah, but yeah. the thing is is he goes show me reagan and i'll believe and then he says can you help an old altar boy father it's that he's on this subway in new york visiting his mom in italy and no one was there but him and this uh, homeless man was an altar boy it's like Okay, you, yeah. you think I'm not real? Yeah. So well done. Yeah, I. I um, so you would say the, you, would you call the original Exorcist an edifying movie? I would. I mean, yeah. I always cut out the scene. People, if they've seen it, know it about the crucifix. But I would say, yes, it is. Now, I know people don't want to see it. Now, they're a cup of tea for one reason or another. I get it. But I would say, yes, it's an edifying movie. I, I, The language in it is really appalling. Yeah, times. there's some things. It's not the kind of gratuitous. There's the vulgarities and some profanities. But they're kind of more you'd expect with regard to secular people as opposed to being you know willfully malicious toward the church yeah and the, and the, 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 these are demons you're dealing with you know you're dealing with those those uh, supernatural for our preternatural force that hates the church yeah you know yeah so you're going to have all kinds of they're doing their best to discredit uh the church now uh exorcist uh, believer the new one yes would you call that edifying I wouldn't say so, but I think it shows, again, it's in spite of itself, it shows the Catholic Church because uh, at the end, the devil ends up going, how exactly, it's not clear, but I can't recommend it, uh, and I hope the next two are better because they spent a lot of money for the rights, so they better go back oh, to the gonna, old formula. They're, and they're going to keep going. Yeah, two more to come. Wow. Tom, thanks. Uh, very helpful, and um, I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Great. Always to be with you, Al. Again. Tom Nash, A Tale of Two Exorcisms, comparing the classic Exorcist from 1973 with this newest film called Exorcist Believer. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. 
What is the perfect prayer? The prayer that was taught us by the Lord Jesus himself, the Our Father. The Catholic Catechism cites the Our Father as truly the summary of the whole gospel. St. Augustine writes, Run through all the words of the holy prayers, and I do not think you will find anything in them that is not contained and included in the Lord's Prayer. The scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the psalms, says the Catechism, are all fulfilled in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. St. Thomas Aquinas gives equally high praise to the Our Father. The Lord's Prayer, he says, is the most perfect of prayers. In it, we ask not only for all the things we can rightly desire, but also in the sequence that they should be desired. The rightness of our life in Jesus will depend on the rightness of our prayer. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Ciao amici, Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We've got another hour ahead of us here. We're going to be uh, talking to uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen on this new letter that Pope Francis has sent to four women in Germany dealing with the problems associated with the German Synodal Way. And then we're going to spend the bulk of the hour looking at an ancient prophecy that may have foretold Our Lady of Guadalupe, Joseph and Monique Gonzalez, my guests. Stay with me. There's more to come. I'm Al Cresta. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta thanking you for being with me. This uh, this week, uh, there was an uh, letters uh, exchanged between Pope Francis and um, four women German laywomen, uh, trained in the faith, uh, one, I know at least two of them, one a philosopher, one a theologian. And Pope Francis, uh, they were warning Pope Francis of what he already knew, actually, and that is the danger of what is being called the German synodal way, which is the effort on the part of the German bishops to reorient church teaching on matters of sexual morality. There's more involved. They also are interested in the uh, ordination of women uh, to the ministerial priesthood. And since 2019, Pope Francis has actually been warning them that they are um, they're going down the wrong path. So uh, this letter that 
he sent them has now been released, and I'm going to go over that with you, with 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 for you, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen, coming up in the first segment of um, of this hour, and then we're going to take a look. This is the first time we've actually approached this topic, and that is the challenge to Our Lady of Guadalupe. Was the encounter between Juan Diego and Our Lady of Guadalupe fabricated? from a strikingly similar early pagan Aztec song poem, all right? So, were millions of indigenous converts of Mesoamerica duped by unscrupulous Spaniards looking to legitimize their colonial authority? A number of secular scholars claim so and have dismissed the historicity of the Guadalupe narrative. We're lucky, we're blessed, because we have the husband and wife team of Joseph Julian and Monique Gonzalez, who have taken up the challenge here, and uh, with eyes wide open and no fear of the facts, they spent years combing through the relevant historical, linguistic, aesthetic, and anthropological disciplines. We're going to look at Guadalupe and the Flower World Prophecy this hour and how God prepared the Americas for conversion before the Lady appeared. But first, the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, November 21st. It's the memorial of the presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Today's news brought to you by Visiting Angels, providing loving care and assistance for seniors in need at visitingangels.com. A tentative deal between Israel and Hamas to release hostages has been reached. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller addressing the current talks. We are very close to an agreement, uh, but we are not there yet. As you have heard us say a number of times over the course of the past few weeks, nothing is final until everything is final. And at this point, everything is not yet final, but we are close. The deal will include a multi-day ceasefire and around 50 Israeli and international hostages would be freed in different ways, with more eventually to follow. It would also include exchanging Palestinian women and children currently detained in Israel for hostages held by Hamas. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he'll hope that there will be good news soon related to the hostage negotiations. Netanyahu is convening special cabinet meetings after reports came out that a truce deal with Hamas was near. One person is dead and others are missing after a landslide in southeast Alaska Monday night. The Department of Public Safety said three homes were in the path of the landslide. Authorities are asking people to avoid the area in case of additional landslides and some are being asked to evacuate. House Speaker Mike Johnson met with former President Trump last night. This comes after Johnson told CNBC that he was all in for President Trump. Johnson broke with his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, by endorsing Trump. The minutes from the Federal Reserve's last meeting gives no indication of possible rate cuts. The summary of the two-day meeting held October 31st and November 1st show officials remain concerned that inflation could still increase. He said monetary policy will need to remain restrictive in order to get inflation down to the Fed's goal of 2%. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, we learned uh, just uh, in the last, I learned anyways, in the last 24 hours that Pope Francis has written a letter to four German Catholic laywomen expressing his, quote, concerns about the direction of the Catholic Church in Germany. Uh, the full text of the letter is available, and you'll be able to see it in the Crest to Guest archives um, after today's program. But uh, with me right now to help us understand the history behind 
this letter. We've got Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News and a Senior Fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Matthew, good to have you here. Thanks. Yeah, very good to be with you. Let's talk about this. Uh, what's the content? What What is the Pope saying to these four laywomen? Well, this is uh, uh, an, an interesting development because it, in some ways it uh, is somewhat unexpected. And what I mean by that is that uh, uh, Pope Francis had not really weighed in since his last uh, comments uh, in which he described the German synodal way as elitist and unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this particular letter that was uh, dated November 10th, and uh, there's some significance to that that we can talk about in a minute, uh, he he sends this letter to four German women. So that's notable because uh, each of these professors of theology, each uh, fairly notable for their knowledge and philosophy, theology, and just an understanding of the, the Church in Germany, uh, had resigned from their participation in the German synodal way, or mm-hmm. the German synodal path, uh, in protest for what they saw were these uh, unacceptable radical radical ideas on the part of the synodal way. And so he thanks them in this letter for their letter to him expressing grave concerns. Now, their letter was dated November 6th. Okay. His, in reply, is November 10th. So the Holy Father wasted no time uh, in responding to them. Yeah. And this was subsequently published in uh, Die Welt, uh, so a German newspaper, uh, so the decision was made somewhere along the line to make this letter public, even though the letter itself was addressed to four German Catholic laywomen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of that matters because Pope Francis is clearly uh, expressing his worry uh, that the, the Catholic Church in Germany uh, is under grave threat from yeah. this synodal way, in particular— uh, the unity of the universal church as expressed by this German synodal way, especially its push to establish a permanent synodal council that would essentially take over control of the German church in yeah. Germany. This is this is strong. It's a strong letter. Uh, it's not the first time, though, that he's weighed in um, with clarity uh, about his concerns uh, over the German no, synodal I mean, way. Well, you're absolutely right, and, and this is one of the immediate questions, I think, that uh, will be asked. Uh, the Holy Father has spoken several times on this. I, uh, you and I have talked many times uh, about uh, the Pope's 28-page letter yep. to German Catholics that he sent in June of 2019, yep. uh, basically calling on the Germans to take his path, not theirs. And this is in response to the real work that was undergoing and being undertaken by the, the German leadership of uh, the Central Committee of German Catholics in close cooperation with uh, most of the bishops, you may have to stress most of the bishops of the German Episcopal Conference, uh, to push ahead with this German synodal way. We've had as well a number of Vatican offices, including uh, the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, uh, expressing their concerns uh, that, uh, including Cardinal Kurt Koch, who is in mm. charge of it. That was uh, that, that was twenty twenty. That was twenty twenty <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we we keep seeing these statements that are coming out uh, by Pope Francis and and leaders in uh, the Vatican, uh, and yet the Germans persist. And yeah. I think that's going to be the big takeaway from this: is what happens if they persist again. Yeah. What are the next steps that Francis is willing to take? 
uh, in June of 2022, he, he makes one of the remarks, which I actually find humorous. He's uh, speaking about the Snottleway in Germany in a conversation with the editors of Jesuit journals. Uh, this is in June of 2022, and he says he told the leader of Germany's Catholic bishops, this is Bishop George Weitzing, that the country already had a very good evangelical church, which means <laughs> yes. Prot- in German, evangelical means Protestant. They already had a very good Protestant church, and we don't need two. I mean, you can hardly get you can hardly get any clearer than that. Well, and it wasn't referenced by Pope Francis, but uh, I, I would quibble slightly. I'm not disagreeing with the Pope, but he said a very good evangelical, <laughs> especially talking about the, the Lutheran. I'm right. not sure what shape that that Lutheran church is in at this point. Right. So this is not a, an ecclesial body that we want to be emulating. <laughs> right. uh, of course, is exactly what the German uh, synodal way is doing. But the Pope also made that important point. Again, that this is a path that comes from intellectual theological elites, yep. and as he put it, is influenced by external influences. And, and he he has used the phrase that it is ideological, it is elitist. Right. And the one thing that uh, you do not want to be uh, in terms of Pope Francis is called ideological, because he, that is one of his big things. Yes. Uh, one of his grave concerns he has expressed, for example, he doesn't like ideological bishops. Um, yeah. So for him to use that phrase as he did uh, tells you that he was unhappy. But uh, here we are, uh, a month removed basically from uh, the conclusion of the Synod on Synodality, where you had Bishop Batesing, the head of, as you know, to the head of the German Episcopal Conference, who is one of the, the, the ringleaders of this German synodal way, uh, saying that he came out of this synod on synodality, affirmed that they have to keep pushing ahead uh, with their own agenda. And here we have this movement uh, to move ahead uh, with this committee. Now, there's an important distinction that has to be made, uh, and Pope Francis references it in his letter, that uh, the establishment of a synodal committee that, as he notes, was referenced by these uh, four German women, uh, these very impressive German women, uh, as he says, that the establishment of a synodal committee that aims to set up a consultative and decision-making body. So in other words, we're seeing the push for a synodal committee that will lead to, or at least they, they want to lead to, a synodal council mm-hmm. uh, that will have almost total control over the church in Germany, and yeah, that has stru- to be short-circuited. That's a structural change, in the, I would think, in the divine constitution of the church. That's right. Uh, and, and Pope Francis notes that um, it is this proposed structure, as he puts it, quote, is not in alignment with the sacramental structure of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Consequently, its formation was forbidden by the Holy See, and then he actually gives a date. We all go all the way back to January 16th of this year that received his specific endorsement. Wow. So one of the points that Francis is making is, look, we have forbidden this, and here I am writing to you again uh, that we have this committee that's being formed. Now, now the Germans would say, well, this is just a committee, an advisory body, uh, while we work to try to secure uh, approval of this. That's more or less the point being made uh, by one of the heads of 
uh, this process, uh, who's the vice president uh, for all of this, uh, for the, the Central Committee of German Catholics. Again, there's an effort to have this sort of cleaned uh, by the synodal, German synodal way itself to somehow receive validation again from Rome. And when it isn't forthcoming, they just push ahead anyway. Yeah, this is this is serious. I mean, it, it it's like we're watching a coming train wreck. I mean, this this uh, it's hard to know what the German bishops are going to do. I mean, it's the closest well, right. thing I think. Well, you you have you you were you remained uh, faithful uh, to the church throughout your life. Uh, I was away for a long time, but in my experience, this is the closest thing I've seen to schism. Um, how, how do you see it? Yeah, I I agree. It it's a kind of uh, schism in slow motion. Yeah, uh, or it's sort of schism by bureaucracy. Yeah. And what I mean by that is it, 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 it's a long-standing joke that the Germans are very efficient. Uh, they are very gifted in the area of administration and, and bureaucratic processes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that we have seen unfold with this German Somali way for years now, uh, that since its launch in 2019, that they have gone about it very programmatically, very systematically. Uh, and each time that they have been told no, they pass various resolutions to move forward, yeah. despite further criticism and further no's, and yet this process grinds on. And uh, I was referencing the uh, vice president of the, the Central Committee of German Catholics that is really at the heart of this process. This is a very radical organization of a small group of Catholics that uh, able to get their hands on the levers of the church in Germany, mm-hmm. uh, to get their hands, especially on the administrative function uh, for the church in Germany. And his name is Thomas Suding, uh, he's vice president, and his whole reaction to the Synod on Synodality was that it was a confirmation of the Synodal Way in Germany. So whatever happened, they keep taking this as confirmation, and they just want to push ahead with the ultimate goal of the Synodal Council. So yeah. they see that as the next logical step, no matter what Pope Francis says. Yeah. So we keep coming back to that question. All right, so if they do push ahead with this, what is the reaction going to be from the the, the Vatican itself, Pope Francis in particular, in reaction to this? And this has been the warning for some time uh, from this a, a group called Neuer Anfang, which means a new beginning, uh, and why these four remarkable four laywomen wrote to Pope Francis, yeah. uh, asking for his help. I I love um, the paragraph, uh, I'll just share part of it. I love that he writes, In my letter to the pilgrim people of God in Germany, I sought not to find, quote, salvation in constantly evolving committees, nor to persist in self-absorbed dialogues, rehashing the same themes. Rather, I aim to re-emphasize the importance of prayer, penance, and adoration. I urge an openness and a call to action to engage with our brothers and sisters, especially those found at the thresholds of our church doors, in the streets, within prisons, hospitals, public squares, and cities. Uh, I firmly believe that in these places, the Lord God will guide us. Pretty strong language. Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Thing.
again, he was asking them and has asked them, take his synodal journey, yeah. not one of their own. Yeah. Matthew, thanks so much. Uh, very helpful again. We'll talk Great soon. with you. Okay. Let's keep praying for the, for the Germans. Amen. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Imagine you signed up for flying lessons, but five minutes into your first lesson, your instructor handed you the plane's controls and told you to try landing. It sounds crazy, but that's what we do when we ask our kids to complete a task they're not equipped for. Whether it's managing their frustration respectfully or cleaning up the messy room, if they don't have the skills they need to succeed, we're setting them up to crash. Before asking our kids to fly solo, we parents need to do some basic pre-flight checks. Are our kids old enough for the task we're giving them? Have they consistently shown mastery of that task? If not, we need to mentor them from the co-pilot seat just a little bit longer. Dive more deeply into discipleship discipline techniques by checking out the newest editions of Parenting Your Kids with Grace or Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace or visiting catholiccounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popcheck, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit catholiccounselors.com. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. John 14. This is Jesus in the upper room with the disciples before he's going out to his sacrifice of himself for our salvation. And Philip says to the Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, have I been with you all this time? Don't you understand? When you see me, you're looking at the Father. In fact, only two people throughout human history have given rise to the question, not who is he, but what is he? The two people are Buddha and Jesus. Buddha's answer was, don't come to me, don't look to me, look to my doctrine, look to what I teach. Jesus' answer was, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus is explicitly claiming to be God. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? 
Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Uh, secular scholars, uh, at least some, have uh, claimed what they see are clearly parallels between uh, Juan Diego's story of Our Lady of Guadalupe and, in fact, a collection of uh, song poems, uh, which it's part of, a, again, a collection, Origin of the Songs in particular, and this has caused some dismay among believers who have noticed these parallels. My guests, though, are two people who were not afraid to go and check this thing out, to take a look at all the facts, the possible interpretations. Uh, we know the way the story goes. San Juan Diego, St. Juan Diego, uh, ascended Tepeyac Hill. Uh, before his famous encounter with the Blessed Mother, he was uh, surrounded by beautiful music, wondrous sights. He asks himself is, if he's found the place his ancestors spoke of, the flower world paradise and the land of heaven. Um, what was he referring to, and how does that form perhaps the backdrop of uh, the story of Our Lady of Guadalupe? Joseph Julian Gonzalez is the co-author of Guadalupe and the Flower World Prophecy, How God Prepared the Americas for Conversion Before the Lady Appeared. He's a, a well-known and respected composer whose music has been performed at Carnegie Hall, the Sydney Opera House, Walt Disney Concert Hall, the Vatican, and other prestigious venues. His composing credits include Academy Award-nominated feature documentary Colors Straight Up, the Emmy Award-winning Made in L.A., and the Peabody Award uh, winning six-part miniseries, Latino Americans. He's conducted the Bulgarian National Radio Symphony Orchestra for his score for the Imagine Award-winning PBS landmark documentary called Children of Giant. And he's also co-composed the score to Quentin Tarantino's Curdled with rock and roll legend Slash from Guns N' Roses. Uh, his wife, Monique Gonzalez, is uh, the co-author of Guadalupe and the Flower World Prophecy, How God Prepared the Americas for Conversion Before the Lady Appeared. She has studied classical voice with various notable vocal instructors, has been a professional cantor at several prominent churches in L.A., New York City, and here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where Monique and I met. She's produced uh, internationally recorded full orchestral scores, including the award-winning PBS documentary Children of Giant, and was a singer on the Peabody Award-winning miniseries Latino Americans. She has co-authored the libretto for the three-part opera, uh, which is translated Dreams of Bejar. Well, Joseph, good to make your acquaintance, and Monique, good to talk with you again. Hello. Great to talk Hello. to you again. Hello. Thank you. Thanks now, for having us. Well, thank you. This is a tremendous amount of work. And uh, when you showed me uh, the manuscript, I just I said, 
Wow. I, I, this, you, you, you had to turn over a lot of rocks and touch a lot of bases uh, to, to get this done, and it's, it's quite remarkable. But let's, let's talk about the problem to which this book is the solution. Joseph, okay. you want to start? Yes, please. Thank you. Yeah, the, the, the problem is, and perhaps this may surprise a lot of your Catholic listeners, but there's a genre of what they call Aztec flower song poems uh, that sounds strikingly like the Guadalupe narrative. The, the, the metaphor actually is that of a singer who's looking for flowers so he can gather them in his tilma and he can present them to the lords and princes. And um, there's, a, there's much more to the story, and we can get into that. But the problem that, 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 that is in the secular world is that they're saying, well, obviously the similarities are so close to the Guadalupe narrative, this must be the source for a fabricated Guadalupe narrative. Right. In other words, this is what the Spanish used, maybe perhaps one of the many tools that the Spanish used in order to dupe the indigenous people into converting into Catholicism. Well, as you said, you know, we had to turn over so many rocks, we had to read so many books. It was like this kind of like a, a hill of knowledge that we had to kind of go over into, into finally being able to see a clear picture of history and what these poems actually are, which we say is actually evangelical preparation. Yeah. So, uh, Monique, if you'd like to add something to that. Um. Not necessarily. I think maybe just the general idea is that um, because in the secular realm they're very open in discussing a lot of this, but we just hadn't seen anything on the Catholic side. Right. So after quite a few years of researching it and hoping we would see somebody writing a book on it, we just kind of came to the conclusion that this, what we call our wonderful obsession, had to be put down in our own words, and, and so it's being born today as it, as it is. So. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to point out that... Uh, we we believe that uh, God uh, prepared uh, the Hebrew people for the coming of Messiah. There's antecedents, historical antecedents, mm-hmm. and it's it's not uncommon in Catholic understanding of at least Western civilization um, that uh, even the classic Greek philosophers may have prepared the soil uh, for the coming of the gospel to the Gentiles. So, uh, is, is, are you proposing then that this collection of songs um, is really the way the Holy Spirit uh, implanted these concepts in Mesoamerica prior to Our Lady's appearance? Yes, absolutely we're doing that. In fact, you can draw so many, many parallels between the Greek philosophers, the Greek ideas of values and morality, such as Justin Martyr, who was actually converted because of the this strong philosophical foundation that had been implanted before Jesus came and the gospel message arrived. We're saying that there was such a thing as Mesoamerican wise men or philosophers who would have been called Nawa. That's, that's kind of the collected name of the people of Mesoamerica during the time of the conquest, that there was such a thing called Nawa philosophy, and it was actually through the flower song poems that they expressed this philosophy. And what it really comes down to is, of course, there's pantheism, polytheism, human sacrifice. But there was also, what undergirded this 
was a belief in, tr- in the transcendence, uh, very much like Plato, for example, idea that in a heaven, in another realm, there exists the perfect forms. Well, it's so similar that through earthly beauty, the Nahuatl thought about divine beauty. And it was really, as we're making the case, with certain things such as the flowers, the four-petaled flower, a belief in the flower of paradise, that this transcendental aspect, this search for beauty, truth, and goodness existed, and excuse me, and that it, and it was through the tran- transcendentals that God was able to kind of like sneak in yeah. and was able mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to do something for the people of Mesoamerica to convert them. Yeah. Uh, so this preparation then uh, leads that... Uh, how, I guess I'm wondering how... Um, how rich was the meditation on the flower world paradise? I mean, is that is that the the pre Guadalupe concept of heaven? Sure. Well, what we found was kind of interesting is there's this field of study called flower world studies, and in the process of archaeologists and linguists and anthropologists trying to understand the belief systems here in America, they discovered that this particular belief system in a solar flow, paradisal realm was shared in common by uh, millions of people covering a huge geographical region. And they discovered it, they could hard date it. They could take it as far back as the inception of the Olmec Society, which is about 1500 BC. Wow. And you start seeing all, yeah, all these characteristics that are very specific to this flower world paradise, whether it be uh, shining iridescence coming through flowers and rocks and gemstones and the birds and the butterflies. All of these characteristics are found in common in the song poetry, which is how they first learned about it. And then they started finding it in, in temples, archaeological ruins, hmm. in murals. You start seeing four-puddled flowers. You start seeing them... Um, as indicators of uh, how they believe the soul would travel into this flower world paradise. Or, and, and you start learning more and more about what they perceive a, a soul would need to go through in order to obtain that flower world paradise. If Joseph would like to jump in and kind of talk more about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll just kind of quickly sum it up. And, and the, the reason why this connects to the Guadalupe story is because, as you mentioned, Juan Diego actually names this place in his Nahuatl language, in Xochitlalpan in Tonacatlalpan, which is the exact same place that these anthropologists and linguists and uh, archaeologists are referring to. Mm-hmm. So now it kind of sets context as to why Juan Diego said, "Could the flower world paradise, could this be the place our ancient ancestors spoke of? Yeah. So he leads us on this quest. And, of course, there's more to it because the, the, the flowers end up becoming a metaphor for truth. And, of course, Juan Diego finds the flowers at the end of the, um, at the, end of the story. So there's so many connections here, and we go through that in our book. Yeah, uh, it's really remarkable. Tell us again about the, the use of the flower uh, in the role the Tilma plays in all of the ancient stories. Well, the ancient man had this concept of a four-directional, a four-petaled flower, which really represented the known universe, north, south, east, and west. Okay. What, em- what emanates from the center point of that 
is a way in which to reach heavenly beauty, heavenly truth, it, that is found in the flower paradise. So it's, the flower is a symbol for the connection between heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, Juan Diego, as a baptized Christian, finds the truth of the university as he gathers, gathers it in his tilma, uh, mimicking that gesture of the ancient singer who was looking for flowers. But of course, on the tilma, there is actually a four-petaled flower over the womb of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And what it's signifying is that it's a two-dimensional image, but if you try to see it as a three-dimensional image, you can see that the center point is like a wormhole leading us to eternity, leading us to ultimate truth and beauty, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. Wow. It's it's a remarkable story, and it's a remarkable look at this... uh, preparation uh, for the gospel uh, that we're seeing in Mesoamerica. Again, I want to, we're going to come back and continue the conversation, but I want to, again, recommend Guadalupe and the Flower World Prophecy, how God prepared the Americas for conversion before Our Lady appeared. And we're going to continue with uh, Joseph uh, and Monique Gonzalez on the other side of this break. I'm Al Cresta. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. What are we expressing when we use the word our in relation to God? The Catholic Catechism tells us the adjective our does not mean possession, but an entirely new relationship with God. It means that we recognize that all God's promises of love coming through the prophets are fulfilled in the new and eternal covenant in his Christ. We have become his people and he is our God. We are to respond to this gift in Jesus Christ with love and faithfulness. 
The church is this new communion of God and man. In praying our Father, each of the baptized is praying in this communion as written in the Acts of the Apostles. The company of those who believed were of one mind and one heart. But the hour in the Our Father, if prayed sincerely, also includes all for whom God gave his beloved Son, revealing the dimensions of God's love for all, even those who do not yet know him. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Maybe you've been hearing a lot about the need to make a spiritual communion while participating from home in a live-streamed or broadcast Mass. Maybe you've even prayed the prayer of spiritual communion. Spiritual communion is a concept that goes all the way back to the 4th century. It flourished in the Eastern Church and gradually moved west. Spiritual communion stresses the transcendence of God, where we unite our desires, intentions, and loves with the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the consecration of the Eucharist at the altar. Jesus, I embrace you and unite myself wholly to you. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Continuing conversation with Joseph and Monique Gonzalez. They are the co-authors of Guadalupe and the Flower World Prophecy, How God Prepared the Americas for Conversion Before the Lady Appeared. C.S. Lewis has an essay called The Myth Become Fact. It's a concept which J.R.R. Tolkien shared with him and became part of Lewis's thinking. And it's the idea that uh, in European legends and uh, myths uh, of various peoples, you have this myth of the dying and rising God, uh, which actually became historic fact in the uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do we have something similar here, that the ancient um, uh, Mesoamerican philosophers, uh, thinkers, wise men, talking about... um, again, the flower world paradise, that this story that they refer to actually becomes historical fact in the life of Juan Diego. Yes, we're absolutely making that claim. Yeah. Um, We were so surprised when we were doing our research that, um, you know, if you put the two stories together of a singer who's looking for flowers, trying to get into the flower world paradise, but cannot go there because he is afflicted and with sin, and only the God of far and near can make one worthy to enter the flower paradise. We find something of a part one of a story, mm-hmm. uh, that of a paradise lost, yes. which is very typical to pagan uh, cultures around the world. But in part two, we, of course we're in, the, we're in the world of legend, we're in the world of myth, but these are important stories to pagan cultures or any cultures, uh, but of course, with in the story of Juan Diego, it, it actually happened. We have it happened in four days, December ninth to December twelfth, fifteen thirty one. There was a real Juan Diego. Um, the millions of conversions that followed really did happen. 
so we're making the case that God was making a case for belief, that something that was implanted into the culture eventually turned into reality. Mm-hmm. Juan Diego steps into the historical timeline, and he completes the story. Whereas we find we have a failed hero, we now have a redeeming hero, the one that actually completed the quest, and that was to find the flowers. Yes. He becomes an archetypical hero at that point. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I mean, this is remarkable. This also explains the, re- the the remarkable rate of conversion, too, doesn't it? I mean, there's now anthropological and sociological antecedents uh, to this massive conversion that takes place. Monique? Yes. Yes. Actually, um, one of the things that we definitely delve into a lot in Guadalupe and the Fowl Prophecy is going through many of the, the accounts that are detailing the numbers, the sheer numbers coming were absolutely staggering. Um, and there's so many accounts of people coming from hundreds of miles away that the Spanish could not account for the numbers that were coming in. That <laughs> many of the people that were traveling in had not encountered the Spanish before. So if you take that into consideration for traveling 70 miles, 120 miles, yeah. Uh, 250 miles in some cases, where they're coming out from three, um, not only from that distance, but to the closest monastery. Um, oftentimes, that was quite far away from Mexico City. We need another way to account for how they were getting inspired to move towards baptism, yeah. and and you know what would do that would be this type of a story that was so ingrained in their culture that when you see the fulfillment of it. Um, after so so long craving to get to the flower world paradise and then discovering that there was an actual mechanism for them to get there, that they didn't have to sacrifice themselves in a bloody way the way they were being told, then it kind of changes our perspective of what happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Now, the book is published, is today the actual publication date? Yes, it is, November 21st. All right. (laughs) Well, that's very nice, the presentation of Our Lady. Um, yes. yes. So it's, uh, it, has it reached the bookshelves yet? So can people order it? Oh, yes. It's, uh, it, could be, it could be ordered through SophiaInstitutePress.com. It could be ordered there, or, of course, it could be ordered on Amazon, yeah. or Barnes & Noble, and any other bookseller, okay. as of today. Yeah, and we'll certainly have it in our uh, bookstore as well. Uh so this is, I'm, I'm anxious to see uh, the response. Uh, do you think that uh, you're going to engage, end up, uh, is this guy, you're going to be presenting this at any uh, academic seminars uh, where secular scholars will have to engage you in this? You know, I, I hope so. Um, I mean, I think that you can see, you know, we have an extensive bibliography, yeah. and not mm-hmm. many of them are actually devotional Guadalupe books. <laughs> they are pretty hardcore anthropology, archaeology, linguistic books, um, but they all seem to point in one direction. And, you know, in, in a course of our research, we went to many of these Mesoamerican conferences. We met these scholars. Mm-hmm. I would hope that they would want to engage. I, I think that we have something here, and we try to prove it not only on a devotional level, but also on an academic, scholarly level, too. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's an incredibly thorough uh, bibliography. It's um, remarkable, uh, all the work that you've done. How, tell me, when, when did this... 
when did this bee get in your bonnet first? What? Well, how many years ago? You want to explain, money? Yes, it started about 14 years ago for the both of us. But prior to that, Joseph initially stumbled upon it because he was writing a concert mass where he was integrating um, Aztec song poems with the Roman Catholic High Mass. And in the process of doing that, he discovered this ancient song poem that's echoed in other song poems talking about the singer uh, wanting to go up to the top of a hill to gather flowers in his, in his choma to share with the lords and princes. So when he first heard about it, he saw the secular perspective on it and realized that they were saying it's the basis of the fabricated Guadalupe narrative. He yeah. was on the shelf. He got, it hurt his face. Sure. I met him years later, and when um, it, the concert mass had to go back to Carnegie Hall, he wanted to add more music to it, so he needed more song poems. He hands me the book. I read it. I'm shocked. And then at that point in time, I turn to him and say, well, what do you know about this? And he started pointing out all the secular, you know, uh, responses to it. And from that point on, we just kind of put our heads together and said, you know, let's get to the bottom of this. Yeah. Let's find out why um, we ha- we're not hearing about it on the Catholic side and, and why the secular scholars are saying what they did. And so we call it our wonderful obsession. It just turned into this crazy thing where we just started reading everything we could find. And the more we read, the more we realized there might be something much larger occurring than we initially perceived, you know, and and that was pretty eye-opening for us and really strengthened our faith. Yeah, no, it's, I can see, uh, you know, how this would grow into an obsession, and um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm anxious to see it get in circulation and have people respond to it. It's, I think it's, your presentation is compelling, to the degree, I'm not an expert in the in the field, but I mean, uh, on the face of it, uh, you've done a spectacular job. Um, have you gotten? I'm just curious. Uh, where do you with with a, a book like this? Um, how do you get it into the bloodstream? You might say, of the devotional world. Uh, again, mm-hmm. it's not a devotional book in the. Tr- traditional sense at all. It's a very intellectually demanding book, but still it seems to me uh, people should have it uh, at where they have shrines, where they have special uh, uh, mm-hmm. presentations of Our Lady Guadalupe. This should become standard reading, it would seem to me. Well, you know, we, we debated that. You know, at at one point this was a 900-page book, and we got it. <laughs> it was. And we said, no, that's, that's a little bit too much, so now it's, you know, under 300. But we debated because we, we thought, well, we could water down this information, um, or we could just present it and, and, and actually have people learn about Mesoamerica, because unfortunately a lot of people don't know about the Olmecs or the Mayan right. or the Nahuatl. And mm-hmm. there was just so much context that we had to give that we thought, well, we, we just, it, it, hopefully people will want to know about this if they have a devotion in Guadalupe. Because I will tell you, as, as you've been saying, you know, um, once you see the entire big picture over a 3,000-year period, you just are in awe. Yeah. You were just saying, wow, look what God did how we prepare the Mesoamerican people with every single detail. Uh, we hope that when people at least get to Chapter 7, <laughs> which is the Guadalupe event, that all these little things that we've been laying out in the previous chapters, which sometimes seem a little tedious, how they all come together, 
and just make this compelling case for belief. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be doing interviews and hopefully uh, doing lectures. And we'd li- we, we think, as you think, that it should be part of the dialogue. Yeah. It should be part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it just adds another layer to the knowledge a- out there about Guadalupe. Yeah, no, I, I, I really do hope uh, we can do something to help uh, make this a standard understanding of the phenomenon of Our Lady of Guadalupe and uh, the experience of Juan Diego. Joseph, I'm interested in knowing, when you first came across this, it was troubling uh, to you, because uh, you just had, you know, the secular presentation of it. When, what was it that kind of flipped the light on or, you know, enabled you to say, wait a minute, uh, there's another way of looking at this phenomenon? Well, you know, as, uh, this would have been back in the early 1990s when I first got a hold of this book, um, Songs of the Aztecs by John Beerhorst, that had the troubling scholastic, uh, scholarly line that was saying that it was all fabricated. Yeah. It was forced to show for fabricated. And, and it really hurt my faith. And I mean, I'm Mexican-American. My, my grandma's name is Guadalupe. <laughs> I went to our native Guadalupe elementary school. And it was very troubling. I mean, I thought, wow, this is the smoking gun. This is the way they did it. Right. That I actually thought that for so many years. And then, of course, uh, I met uh, Monique, who became my future wife in 2009. And after so many years and so many books, we just said, you know, there's got to be an alternative way of looking at this. The, the, scholar, the scholarly way of looking at this is actually too simple. It's right. actually very easy to dismantle their arguments. That's right. Very, um, very easy to do. And we thought, wait a minute, uh, this must be preparation. This must have been a way that God was preparing the people of Mesoamerica. So that was part of it. If you want to add to that, Monique, from your perspective. Um, I think it was just in similarity, similarity to what you're saying, just this idea. And it, and it comes back to sort of my own faith life and this understanding that God can handle a person throwing the kitchen sink at, at him, if you will. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can ask all the questions. He is a rational God. It's not just about sentiment, right. but also your mind. It, it, it's engaging the entirety of your person. So if that's true, then why can it not be true in this particular instance? So as time went on, and we researched it more, um, just kind of realizing that um, that is indeed what he was doing. And, and it, you could look at it as he's making the case for belief, because that's, you know, circling back to what you said at the beginning of the interview. You know, God doesn't just leave us out in the wild to just assume things without understanding why things are true. Yeah. He wants us to, to step into it. And in this particular case, he gave a lot of material for the people of Mesoamerica to hang on to him and, yeah. and to trust in him. Well, uh, you've done great work. Uh, I think you've made a great contribution, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what the Lord's going to do in the future. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Really appreciate that. God, God bless you. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org 
A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're on a football team, you don't want to just run up and down the field holding the ball and never cross into the end zone and get a touchdown. We want to reach our goal, but there are a lot of obstacles, discouragement, and challenges along the way. Jesus' voice is the one calling us to say yes to him, to live the life that he is calling us to live. We have to choose one way or the other, choose him or not. But if we choose him, we will be opposed. We're going to have people challenge what we believe or call us crazy. But Jesus doesn't just say, come follow me, to follow a beatitude. He's calling us to be like himself. He is the beatitudes. He doesn't just say, do what I say. He says, come follow me. He's with us every step of the way, transforming our weakness into strength. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health-sharing option. Curo's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Again, uh, the book is called Guadalupe and the Flower World Prophecy, How God Prepared the Americas for Conversion. Before the Lady Appeared, it'll be available in the online bookstore, and we'll have follow-up information, too, in the Cresta Guest Archives. Let me say that uh, our friends at Siouxland Catholic Radio in Iowa uh, are looking to hear from you next week. It's uh, They're airing their Advent Pledge Drive beginning next Tuesday. It'll go Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So if you're listening in Sioux City, uh, Storm Lake, really anywhere there, support your EWTN Catholic radio station. I can't stress enough the importance of supporting uh, all these magnificent local outlets that keep Catholic radio on the air. Without them, our programming would mean nothing, right? So support your local station. And thanks for being with me today. I'm Al Cresta. We have plenty of follow-up information on uh, the uh, movie The Exorcist. Uh, We'll have follow-up information on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, Pope Francis's concerns about the German Snottle Way, and more. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.